Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon producing. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. In 1986, Top Gun was the most popular film. It was the most popular novel, and the New York Mets won the World Series. 1986 was also the year Ernest Hemingway's The Garden of Eden was published, 25 years after his death. Of course, what was published was only a fraction of what Hemingway wrote. So today we are joined by Carl Eby to discuss the Garden of Eden manuscript, the writing process, the editing process, what was left out of the novel, and what we can learn from all of those pages about Hemingway and his most ambitious novel. Carl Eby is the author of the brand new Reading Hemingway's The Garden of Eden, which is an exhaustive look at this novel, going line by line and even in between the lines. Carl is the author of Hemingway's Fetishism, Psychoanalysis, and the Mirror of Manhood, the editor, okay, co-editor of Hemingway's Spain, Imagining the Spanish World, and has also written many articles about American literature, including several about the Garden of Eden. Carl was also good enough to be our special guest on One True Sentence number one. So we invite you to revisit that special episode. He is currently serving as the president of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society, El Presidente. Welcome back to One True Podcast. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks so much for the very generous introduction. No, it's good to see you again, Carl, and congratulations on reading Hemingway's The Garden of Eden. It's a major achievement, and it has taken a really a long chunk <laughs> of your career, hasn't it, this entire project? Yes, yes it has. Um, yeah, and, and I think you approached me about that in like 2007. <laughs> it was worth the wait. Why don't you tell us, um, for, for the uninitiated, what is the story behind the Garden of Eden manuscript? I mean, even starting with when did you begin to get access to th these documents? Yeah. Well, I was a, a grad student at UC Davis um, in the late 80s. I started in 1989. And... The Garden of Eden had come out in 86, so just really three years before. So it was garnering a lot of attention because, I mean, it was a pretty revolutionary novel. I mean, it, it turned the world of Hemingway studies upside down in a lot of ways. And must have been probably my second or third year of grad school that I started working on Hemingway. I knew that, that I was deeply interested in that. And I was interested initially in the way he was treating bullfights. There was a way in which he seemed to eroticize bullfights at times. And I started writing about that and presented a paper on it in, in Pamplona at our Pamplona conference in 1992. And I hadn't read the garden of Eden yet. And 
when you start to think about Hemingway and eroticism, and in particular, I was interested, it, it got all mixed up with the way he was treating hair, you know, because he was so obsessive about hair in any scene where he's talking about eroticism. Um, and then to read the novel Garden of Eden, you know, that was this new thing that people were talking about. It's like, oh my God, it's all over the place here. Um, and so pretty quickly after that, um, I went to the John F. Kennedy Library. I was lucky enough to get one of those grants, you know, the Kennedy Library has and still has to support scholars. And um, they gave me a grant and I went out there and started reading the Eden manuscript, which was just amazing. You know, after reading the published version from Scribner's, which which was a revelation in itself, um, there was just so much more in the manuscript because, you know, um, 60% of what Hemingway wrote in that manuscript was sliced out to produce uh, the Scribner's edition. And so I've been obsessed with that manuscript ever since. And so I just, you know, we keep going back to the Kennedy Library and transcribing. So... Is that really what you did? You literally typed up, you're not allowed to Xerox unpublished manuscripts right. at the JFK. So what you did was you typed up those hundreds and hundreds of pages. Uh, how many words just as a, as a guide? Oh God, over 200,000 words. Wow. Like maybe about 210,000 words. And, you know, really, you know, getting to the point of, of not just typing it all out, because when you're a scholar and you work at the Kennedy Library, you don't normally work with the original manuscript. You work with a photocopy of the manuscript that they provide you. Because, I mean, you know, the manuscripts are so valuable and they're fragile. Hemingway worked on onion skin paper. It's pretty fragile stuff. But at some point, you know, I really got to the point where in my transcription, you know, there's some words you just can't see in the photocopies and things like that. And so they did let me work with the originals. And so I'm holding these up to the light so I can see what Hemingway wrote and then erased, you know, because he's writing in pencil I mean, everything. I was paying attention to the watermarks on the paper because it helps me to date what he was doing with the manuscript. And so it's it's um, been an obsessive <laughs> journey. <laughs> but it's been a blast. I've loved it. So I'd love to get into some of the treasures of the manuscript. Let me... Just back up for one second, though, and your book, Hemingway's Fetishism, came out in 1999. Is it true that the themes that Hemingway presents in the Garden of Eden is just an extension of some of the themes that we've seen hinted in previous works, or are there really things in the Garden of Eden and the manuscript that are completely unexpected, entirely new to Hemingway's career? That's a great question. Um, the Garden of Eden is, was partly such a revelation because it did help us to see more clearly what was hidden in plain sight in all the published works before, you know, um, I mean, the obsession with hair and eroticism and all that stuff that's there in, in for whom the bell tolls or farewell to arms and things like that. Um, but that obsession grew stronger as Hemingway aged. So sort of, you know, in each successive work, you know, it, it, it gets a little bit stronger, at least in the erotic scenes, you know, I mean, it, let's say take a, a book like to have and to have not, you're not going to see it as much there because th there's, there are very few 
erotic scenes. Although there is one where Marie Morgan gets her hair dyed and she gets super, super excited about it. Um, but if you were to look at the manuscript, let's say, of Islands in the Stream, too, there's some other passages where the couple, you know, um, Hudson and his first wife uh, cut their hair identically and switched genders in bed. And it's very much, you know, what, what you're seeing in the Garden of Eden. But yeah, I think Garden of Eden takes it further than any other work. But, it, now, but it's, it's taking something further than existed, if you know what I mean. I do. You're saying that it becomes more pronounced as his career goes along. Is this because he becomes bolder as a writer or because this is just the way his interests evolved during his life? It's the way his interests evolved during his life. Um, it's, you know, I mean, this for me, you know, I explain it from the point of view of fetishism. You know, look, my first book was Hemingway's Fetishism. He was a hair fetishist. Uh, he could not imagine an erotic situation without a prominent, you know, role for hair. Right. Um, you know, identical haircuts, cutting hair, dyeing hair, all these kinds of things. Um, and fetishism, uh, these fantasies do tend to grow stronger over a lifetime. This is just the pattern with fetishism too. I mean, um, but also, I mean, I think he, he grew bolder. Um, and I think, um, you know, Garden, the Garden of Eden is this novel where you've got David Bourne, who's a writer and it's so much a novel about writing and about creativity in so many different ways. But one of the major themes is the importance of being honest, right? Honesty. But with an awareness of how difficult that is to achieve and to sustain, particularly when what you're being honest about is yourself, right? And I don't think that's just a theme in the novel. I think that's a theme in Hemingway's life. I mean, as he was you know, reaching this part of his career, he's really trying to understand something about himself in this novel. And I think that leads him out into new territory that's just requires tremendous bravery on his part. And you believe that all of the boldness and innovation of this novel, he intended to publish all of it eventually. If he lived to edit it, you think it all would have come out? Well, you know, I, I, th I think he was of at least two minds, if not more than that, <laughs> about that topic. You know, and it kind of depends on what day of the week I think you might have asked him. I mean, in like a late 1959 letter to Scribner's, I think he's, um, talking about, um, you know, publishing a movable feast and, um, but he says, He's talking about the Garden of Eden and the book he will publish before it, which he refers to as Movable Feast. So clearly at that moment, he's intending to publish it. But there's a kind of um, metatextual discussion in the novel, The Garden of Eden, where, you know, David's writing the story of these erotic adventures that are, they're kind of, you know, it's a parallel to the novel we're reading, right? He's sort of writing the story we're reading. And Catherine wants to know, if it will be okay to publish it. And he's not so sure, you know, she says, well, we'll do a special edition, you know, with just five copies, you know, <laughs> um, for the, yeah. for the friends who were sort of in on the secret as it were. And so I think sometimes he felt like he was going to publish it. And sometimes he felt like he was just going to write for himself. And that's one of the really fascinating things in the garden of Eden manuscript are these passages with super complex, um, references and symbolism 
um, that's often really, really funny stuff where he, he's building on things that are very personal to himself. That is Hemingway is a lot of inside jokes. There's a way in which he does sound like at times he's writing for himself. What's a good example of an inside joke that was in the manuscript? Say, for instance, at one point they're drinking wine and Catherine Bourne says, I'm so glad we don't, you know, feel the need to drink literary wines and things like this, right? You know, and so she talks about like, like, uh, Chateau Ikem or that Romany stain. Um, and so I was like, what in the hell does she mean by that Romany stain? Right. So, well, Vos Romanae in Burgundy is like, okay, that's a, a great, um, premier crew, you know, um, wine region. And there's a wine from there called Latash, but with, with a circumflex. Um, and that means the work. But if you take the circumflex off the A in that, it becomes stain. So Romane oh, wow. stain. But see, that's based, there was a book in 1926 by Christopher Morley called the Romany stain. And Morley was a literary critic and he'd said stuff about Hemingway. And he had written in, in a review of Hemingway that, oh, that boy sure can write. He just needs to stop adding these topical, these crazy uh, yeah, references yeah, yeah. that nobody would get. And so this is absolutely like, this is Hemingway's joke. It's like a joke response to Christopher Morley written, you know, uh, 30 years later. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's So the you mentioned earlier about the composition process and doing your best to dating what was happening. First of all, can you tell us what the, the your best sense of when Hemingway worked on this and what did scholars previously think? Because weren't there various theories about when Hemingway started and stopped this novel? Absolutely. And, and, that's, that may sound funny to a lot of listeners, just in the sense that normally, you know, when somebody's writing a book, um, but this was such a personal book that Hemingway didn't talk about it a whole lot. Um, and so it's been a mystery among scholars for a long time, you know, sort of, hey, when did he write this thing exactly? And there have been lots of pronouncements about it, a lot of incorrect pronouncements about it, some of them my own. Um, I'll totally yeah. raise my hand on that one. And, um, but yeah, as writing this new book, I really have been able to work it out in many ways. There's some stuff that's still hazy and the hazy stuff is right at the beginning. He starts this maybe, you know, possibly at the very end of 1945, certainly in 1946. Um, and Mary Hemingway says he started it as a short story and worked on it intermittently over the years. Um, so we've got Mary Hemingway's testimony on that. And there's a lot of good reasons to believe that that's, there's a lot of truth to that. Say, for instance, we know from Hemingway's letters that his uh, sexual experiments with uh, his fourth wife, Mary Hemingway, during, let's say, you know, starting as early as, as 1947, probably 1946, mirror very closely what you see Catherine and David Bourne doing in this novel, um, getting, you know, identical haircuts or cutting and dyeing hair, and then 
Um, you know, Catherine calls herself Peter and calls herself a boy in bed at night. And David calls himself, you know, Catherine, um, you know, and her girl. And we know from letters that Hemingway wrote, um, you know, in 1947, that he was doing this with, with Mary, calling her Peter and calling himself Catherine. And I published those letters in Hemingway's Fetishism, if anybody's curious and wants, wants to read those. And it's not just in 47, it's in 53. It's, it's all over the place in the letters. But we don't hear much about the manuscript in, in Hemingway's letters between, you know, let's say 46 and the 1950s, the late 50s. There is a letter where Hemingway says to, um, I forget who he's writing to at the time, that I had the early chapters of the Garden of Eden before I started um, A Movable Feast in 57. He says that. Um, so that certainly sounds like, okay, so there was that stuff from the forties. Now, the reason I say that stuff's hazy, we don't have those manuscripts from the forties. All the manuscript material we have starts in 1958, but it starts in typescript. So it's, it's literally, he's typing and he's got a distinctive typing style. You know, it's his typing, not somebody else. And why that matters is because normally for Hemingway, that's something late in the composition process. He'll write by hand, write a couple of drafts by hand, do a lot of pencil corrections. Then he'll do a typed copy with pencil corrections. And that's what we have for those early chapters. And that tells me pretty much, okay, that's probably reworking that early material. And then it switches into holograph. But so everything that we have starts from the spring of 1958. And this is clear now from some letters, thanks to the Hemingway Letters Project. They're working on this. We're going to see that. But, you know, if you go out and you read his letters, read Mary Hemingway's letters, too. In the spring of 1958, while she's typing a movable feast or the early chapters that Hemingway's written of a movable feast, he gets um, involved in this. And she says he starts writing us in a fever. He's writing morning um, and, and noon and into the evening and can't stop. And what's funny, though, and here's the thing that I think is a big surprise that people are going to uh, get from, from reading uh, my account of the composition of the manuscript, is what we call, what scholars have called the provisional ending. And this is not an ending that, um, Tom Jenks used or that Scribner's used in the published edition. This is an ending that Hemingway wrote and labeled provisional ending. Hemingway wrote that at the end of May, 1958. Uh, he says, when I thought something might happen, um, and this was a really dangerous time in Cuba with the revolution. And there's also another note like he put in the safe at that time. He says, you know, in case of my death, you know, at the end of May, 1958. And he thought he was ready to finish the book. Almost. He thought he was very close. And if you look at the manuscript of the Garden of Eden and you look at chapter 15, um, and there's what, you know, 46 chapters in the manuscript. But if you look at chapter 15, it says really first chapter of last book. Um, and that's crossed out because yeah. he thought he was about ready to, to finish. Then there's um, 
another, uh, there, there's a subplot we're going to need to talk about, uh, I think, too, the, the Sheldon subplot. So, um, Carl, that's exactly where I wanted to go with this, because yeah. when, we had Tom, when we had Tom Jenks on, who edited the, the trade edition, he said that one of his tasks was removing the sub the subplot or parallel plot you'll have to tell us which is the more accurate term because that subplot that second set of characters wasn't as fully realized and from your work you are pushing back on that a little bit you're saying that there there was indeed a lot more there am i am i understanding that correctly yeah. Yeah, I mean, they play a prominent role in the Eden Manuscript, um, directly after uh, the section that, that folks will be familiar with from the published edition, where David and, and his wife are in Le Gros de Roi in, in the south of France. Um, we meet this other couple in Paris, uh, Nick Sheldon and Barbara Sheldon. Uh, they're both painters. Uh, they sound a lot like a young Ernest and Hadley in many ways. Um, and they're growing their hair out and cutting it identically and, and playing very similar games, you know, in bed to the Bournes. Then when um, we see the Bournes go to Hendai, um, or Hendai, you know, in, in France, which would be, you know, sort of that second section before they go to Madrid in the published novel, they encounter the Sheldons. And there's a lot of sexual tension between Barbara Sheldon and... Catherine, uh, they're very attracted to one another. Um, and that plays a, you know, an interesting role in the novel. Um, and then when the Bournes move on to Madrid, they encounter another character who's sliced out of the Scribner's edition, um, Andrew Murray, who is, uh, another writer. And he's a writer who specializes in things Spanish, but he's in love with Barbara Sheldon. And everybody knows it. And it's sort of just accepted that he's in love with her. Um, and he plays a very prominent role in those Madrid chapters. Then we don't see the Sheldons for a very long time. I mean, really, you know, um, the rest of the main body of the manuscript. But then Hemingway wrote an end for the Sheldons subplot. And I would call it a subplot because they're secondary characters. They're not of the same prominence as the Bournes in the novel. Um but it's, but it is also, it's a parallel plot. I don't, I don't think it's an either or. I mean, it yeah, is a parallel right. plot. Yeah. It's almost an exact match. It's sort of a mirror in many ways. Um, and I know for a long time, scholars, um, have talked about the ending of the Sheldon subplot as fragmentary. Um, but if you put the fragments in the right order, it's not fragmentary. <laughs> But it's, I, I don't mean to say that in a, in a glib way. That was not easy to do. You had to sort of transcribe everything to see what the puzzle pieces were to get the puzzle pieces in the right order. Um, partly because there was a, a big long insert that he wrote in there where everything was page 19 for like 20 pages. <laughs> another page 19, another page 19. But it's, it's not the same page. It's, it's, it's a story. And what happens in that story, and this is Hemingway was writing this in the June of, of 1958, when again, he still thinks, okay, I'm close to the end. Um, it's told from Andrew Murray's point of view. Remember, this is the guy from Madrid, the other writer. 
and he goes to see the Sheldons in, in, in Hyundai and there he gets involved in a love triangle. Barbara seduces him while Nick's off painting. Um, and one day while Nick is, is off painting and Barbara's trying, trying again to seduce Andy, who's, who's tried to kind of resist in some ways. Nick is bicycling back and is hit by a car and dies. And Barbara, who, who loves Nick very, very, very much, is devastated by guilt. And Andy tries to take care of Barbara after Nick's death. He takes her to Venice where she drowns herself. Um, and this is important because in the provisional ending that Hemingway had written for the novel and labeled provisional ending for the Bourne plot, um, Catherine has been away. She's been to an institution in Switzerland. She doesn't want to go back there again. This is maybe a year or two years. We don't know how long after the events, you know, of, of the published novel. And she says, if, if I get bad again, she says to David, can I do what, what Barbara did? She says, I don't mean in a dirty place like Venice, but <laughs> that's awful. But, um, anyways, <laughs> um, and David's like, no, I couldn't let you do it. And she says, would you do it with me? And David said, yeah, sure. Um, and that's how the provisional ending that Hemingway wrote ended. But so, you know, he writes the ending in the Sheldon subplot. He's got the ending of the Bourne plot, but he can't stop writing. But that was, it would have been a novel without Marita. That would have been a novel without the African stories. But boy, throughout the summer of 1958, he took off writing and he could not stop. So he adds all the Marita stuff, all the African stories. But as late as November of 1958, he still thought he was going to use the provisional ending. So is there something about the trade edition, the edition that we all have in the bookstore, that is easier or more satisfying or more commercial, less challenging than maybe Hemingway might have envisioned, even in the provisional ending? Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, but I mean, I, I don't blame Tom Jenks for that. I'm, you know, the, the editor of the Scribner's edition, he was hired to produce a trade press volume, right? Something that's a marketable, coherent story. That's, you know, a Hemingway novel to go out there and, and sell, um, and be easily readable. I think a side effect of that is that you get a trade press version of David Bourne and, and to some extent a trade press version of, of Hemingway. That is, I mean, simplified, the nuances are gone. Um, in the manuscript, David is more complex and he, he has these struggles to be honest with himself, right? But one of the things he's trying to come to terms with is his own desire that he, I think the Scribner's edition produces the impression that Catherine invents these erotic games and David pretty much resists them and is always trying to resist them and, and all of this. But the manuscript's much clearer that these are also David's desires that he does also resist. I mean, he's, he's at least two sided about these things. And when I say at least two sided, I, I think that that may underestimate the complexity of this. But he is trying to acknowledge his own desires. So take, for instance, the Scribner's edition. There's a passage where um, 
Catherine talks him into dyeing his hair, you know, like a Scandinavian, and he sees himself as, as a girl in the mirror. And there's a passage where you see him saying, you like it, you like it. Now, that's one of those passages where he's trying to acknowledge his own desires. Now, some people, some scholars have read that as him trying to convince himself of this. But if you read the manuscript, right, it's not just David who says this, and not just like a couple of times, he says it to himself six times, but the narrator says it, and he did like it. These were his desires, right? This kind of thing. Um, that's quite different. Carl, the trade paperback ends with David triumphantly rewriting the manuscript that his wife has burned. And a lot of the insight that your your new book has is about the writing, uh, both with the subplot and with David himself, and maybe what that even tells us about Hemingway, his own process. What did you uncover about what the Garden of Eden can tell us about writing? Oh, gosh, so much. Um you know, it's, you get to see David wake up every morning and write, and you get to see this process, right? And you get to see him sort of, you know, living within the story, you know, to the point where, you know, he's writing about Africa. And after writing, you know, he'll, he'll walk out of his writing room and into the bar, you know, and he can still smell baboon shit, you know, I mean, it's, um, <laughs> he's, you know, he's still there. He's having conversations with his father. He feels that he's coming to understand his father through writing about his father. The, the writing is a way of coming to understand things, right? That's something that was also really pronounced, I discovered really for Hemingway in, in writing this novel. I mean, Mary Hemingway's letters from this time period talk about Ernest living in the story as he was writing it. There were some friends who were going to come over and she says, uh, don't right now. He's so involved in this novel. He's living in another country in another time. And if people come over, he can join you, but it's a wrench. I mean, she uses that word. It's literally wrenches him out of where he's living. So it's, um, he uses the um, metaphor of, of David, being like Mazeppa. And this is this figure. I don't know if you know the, the poem by Lord Byron. Um, this is a guy who was tied to a horse naked and, and set off running. The horse was, was whipped and, you know, and this was a metaphor in the 19th century for the creative writer, you know, carried away, um, by this inspiration and almost, you know, kind of out of control in, in some ways. And that's, uh, uh, also the title of a Evan Shipman poem. Uh, but anyways, um, that, that Hemingway was alluding to, but there's so much about the way in which David uses writing about his childhood as a way of coping with the circumstances he's dealing with in this moment as an adult. Um, but he, in a way he's rewriting his childhood to then cope with this moment as an adult too. And this kind of reciprocal relationship in time that the writer has to memory and to the past, where the past influences the present, but then you, in some sense, rewrite the past and use it again to sort of negotiate your present. That's such a major theme, really, in the novel. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, 
the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. Does Hemingway look at the writing process differently than he looks at the artistic process? Because in the sense of a visual artist or a sculptor, we know that he has artists and writers. Is it the same idea for Hemingway? Yeah, I'm, I, he was always fascinated by that analogy. I mean, you know, if you look at Islands in the Stream, you know, where he's got Thomas Hudson as a painter right. too, or something like this. The, there's a way in which he's always sort of thought of painters as sort of alter egos for for the self. And this is a novel that's more interested in painting than than almost anything else he ever wrote. I mean, there's so many painters mentioned in this novel. You know, not just Nick Sheldon and, and Barbara Sheldon, right? Two of the you know major characters. He gets involved in in the question of illustration. Should you illustrate? Yes, the text? right. And he's like, no, no. You know, it's great to have a picture accompany a, a text, but not try and do what a text does. Um, and and so um, I think he sees the analogy, but he sees the differences too, and I think those differences are important to him. You mentioned the artists that emerge, and why don't we start with the cover of your book? So oh, yeah. <laughs> why why is tell us about the cover of your book and why you chose it? Yeah, it's uh, the Garden of Earthly Delights uh, by Hieronymus Bosch, and this was a painting that that Hemingway really really loved. Um, he also seems to have referred to it as Bosch's Garden of Eden painting. Um, so that's important. But in the Madrid section of the manuscript, well, let's say in the published version, we see Catherine and David go to the Prado. We see a lot of time in the Prado in the manuscript. And Catherine spends lots and lots of time in the Bosch room. And it's implied that she's looking at the Garden of Earthly Delights, which the novel's set in 1927. And, and, you know, like an art historian would know that um, the Garden of Earthly Delights was not actually <laughs> in the Prado in 1927. It was, it was in El Escorial, um, a, a building, you know, s- some miles outside of Madrid. But it was then moved to the Bosch room uh, during the Spanish Civil War. But Hemingway's clearly implying that she's looking at the Garden of Earthly Delights. There's a way she's talking at one point very playfully about the different paintings. And these are paintings that Hemingway loved, you know. She's comparing herself to this portrait of Andrea del Sarto's portrait of his wife or or to Goya's painting of of, uh, the the nude Maha, right, and things like this, and and saying, you know, I'm like her or, or not like her or better than her. Um, and then she said suddenly, will you stop me from dying and going to hell like in the Bosch? And I think she's referring to this Bosch trip. Uh, it's a triptych, right? So there's a, a scene on the left of the Garden of Eden. There's a scene on the right of hell that's terrifying, just fascinating, uh, amazing picture of hell. And in the center, this amazing picture of the earthly delights, which is a kind of erotic, sensual, um, 
uh, phantasmagoria. I mean, it's just amazing what's going on in that image. But she's so obsessed with that painting. David, you know, he, he hears her say, oh, stop me from dying and going to hell like in this painting. He's saying, well, maybe we need to get you away from that painting. She says, well, yeah, maybe. Or, or maybe we can just stay a month more and I'll just go an hour every day. <laughs> so course. she's... That's amazing. Yeah. And also, I think one of the big differences between the manuscript and the published version is Rodin. which it's there it's could you uh tell us about it it's kind of there in the published version but not really the way that Hemingway had had drafted it yeah yeah I mean I, I really don't see much trace of it even in the published version um the first time we see David and Catherine make love in the published version is also the same time we first see them make love in the manuscript and, you know, it's, it's, I think the reader is surprised when Catherine, you know, says, well, now I'm a girl and a boy, both, and I can do anything and anything and anything. When she calls herself Peter, when, um, she then refers to, to David as Catherine and David becomes Catherine. When she initiates that in the manuscript, she says, will you be like you were in the statue? Which is a weird phrase. Right. How could David have been in a statue? But you, you get some sense of what's going on in her mind. And, you know, David's like, what statue? But then he says he knew and it was like the statue. And in the manuscript, it, it becomes clear that this was the metamorphoses of Ovid by Rodin, which was, it's a figure that, you know, uh, he he did as part of the gates of hell and which is this amazing big tall doors right or you know gates with many many different figures on it and he would do separate sculptures of these figures also and so when it's separate it's it's referred to often as the metamorphoses of ovid and i think what's so surprising it's not just that that david and catherine do this but when we meet the sheldons Right. One of the very first things we're told about the Sheldons is for the other two, it had also begun, right, with a trip to essentially the Musée Rodin. Um, he uses uh, the other name for it. It's uh, the Hotel Biron in Paris, but I mean, that's the Musée Rodin. That's where Rodin used to live. And they'd seen the same statue and their erotic games begin with that too. And I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to imagine. Yeah. I, I don't know what what Jenks was thinking when he sliced that out, but it might've been, it's like, this is just too much of a coincidence, sir. So that elimination is entirely Jenks. Hemingway didn't think better of it at all. Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting is, okay, the metamorphoses of Ovid, well, what's the metamorphosis? Um, That was my question. Yeah. 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 Okay. I'm sorry. Do you want to just go ahead and ask? No, no. What's, what, what's being metamorphosed? Yeah. Well, um, Rodin told, um, a Danish collector, this was the story of Salmasus and Hermaphroditos, um, from Ovid's Metamorphoses. And in that story, Hermaphroditos, right, who is, you're going to say, wait, who's Hermaphroditos, you know, or, or, 
who is that's a masculine version of hermaphrodite right or um he was was a young beautiful boy and was seen by the water nymph salmasis and she falls in love with him immediately at first sight and you know wants to make love with him and he's like he's not interested right and and so he tries to get away but she grabs him and puts her arms around him and says she pleads to the gods i never separate us and so you know the greek gods they have a good sense of of humor they they merge <laughs> them into the same being right you know um oh, wow. male and female both and this is the birth of hermaphrodite and so it's like well that's kind of relevant but of course, you know, I mean, Hemingway doesn't say that in the manuscript. He doesn't give you the backstory on it. But I mean, Hemingway's full of these icebergs. No, that is great. And Carl, actually, one other uh, nugget from your book and art that I thought was just fascinating was all that Hemingway wrote about Picasso. Oh, yeah. yeah now, Picasso correct me if I'm wrong. He's He is not in the published version at all right there's nothing about picasso it's got it's it's it was all buried in the manuscript that's interesting um picasso does come up very briefly oh, in does the published he? version yeah because um david's writing the story of the honeymoon narrative right which is essentially the mm-hmm. novel we're reading catherine her project becomes she wants to get this book illustrated Right. Remember, I was telling you that Hemi was really interested in this whole conversation of, or, or sort of the philosophical idea of illustration uh, in this book. And she's got a list of painters. And so she thinks of Marie Laurenson. She thinks of, of uh, Pessin, um, of Dorain, of Dufy, and Picasso. But no, Picasso okay. plays a, a big role, though, in the manuscript, though. Yeah, I mean, Catherine, she goes out to see Picasso because she wants to talk Literally to illustrate the artist himself. Yeah. 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 And he's good buddies with David. And, and she, you know, Picasso calls uh, David, uh, you know, his savage friend. You know, as Hemingway was a, a good fan of Picasso. And Hemingway, at times during his life, as much as, you know, this seems in the published novel and the published version of The Garden of Eden, like Catherine's crazy project. Hemingway was always interested in having Picasso illustrations in, in his books and, and did in the, or tried in the 1920s. And then in 1958, as he's writing the Garden of Eden, there's a German edition of the undefeated that comes out with accompanying illustrations by Picasso. Now they're not illustrations of the story. So he's not like drawing figures. I see from the undefeated. They're, images of bullfighting put side by side. And that's the way Hemingway wanted images to be used with text. He says, it's great to have works by a great artist next to the text, but don't try and illustrate what's happening in the text. And so Picasso literally interacts with one of the characters and then goes on uh, referring to David as, as a, as a colleague. Yes, absolutely. And and says that Nick Sheldon, by the way, is, is the best of the American painters, too. That, that's um, amazing. So, I mean, David Bourne is part of that world. David Bourne knows Ezra Pound and things like this. In, in a really strange scene that was cut out of the manuscript, um, it was discarded from the manuscript, 
David also knows um, Fitzgerald and Hemingway. And actually, the Fitzgerald part wasn't even cut. Um, some of that still remains. But yeah, that he he knows Hemingway. <laughs> That's a really weird moment. That is. Uh, one of the things that even in the published version, I think a lot of scholarship came out that was was sort of vibrant in, in that it talked about a new strain of Hemingway's uh, fiction was Africa and how yeah. it sort of extended Green Hills of Africa and, and, and Hemingway's previous travels and involvement with Africa. What does the, does the manuscript give us something different or just more of what's in the published version? How can, how does it elaborate on it? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. It's, it's a rich question. There's a lot to be said about that. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, back in, in 2005, um, there was a book published you know, under Kilimanjaro, which is Hemingway's account of his, you know, 1953-54 safari. It's, it's a more complete version of what was published as True at First Light, right? Um, a few years before that, uh, an edited version. And people have looked at that as a manuscript that Hemingway just abandoned. But I would say, no, he didn't just abandon it. He realized what he wanted to do with that material. And he incorporates that into the Garden of Eden manuscript and reimagines it. But it's so much based on the same material. So we hear a little bit more about a few more David Bourne stories about Africa. right? Um, Then we get in the Scribner's edition, little bits and pieces, not complete stories like you have, let's say, with the elephant hunt story. But the relationship between the African stories and the present that David's living on the Riviera at that point, you know, with Catherine and Marita becomes a lot clearer. Um, For instance, uh, David thinks, you know, that in trying to make the elephant alive again in the story, maybe he could make Catherine alive again too. Um, And, um, she's the much more closely equated with the elephant in, in various ways in David's mind in the manuscript, but also there's a way in which Africa becomes this whole erotic subtext in the Garden of Eden manuscript. One of the things that gets edited, not entirely out of the Scribner's edition, but boy, does it it, re- it really gets minimized, is the degree to which uh, racial otherness, ethnic otherness is coded as uh, erotic. It's literally fetishized, um, you know, in the novel. And so, you know, you see this with, with Catherine's sun tanning and things like this. At various points, Catherine and, and Marita fantasize about being Somali girls, Mabulu girls, Native American girls, Lascars, um, Japanese, Javanese, um, Kamba. Uh, uh, you, you get the idea. I mean, I could go on and on. I mean, it, it, it's, it's like traveling the world. <laughs> and, and, but that's part of that relationship to those African stories. So they'll say, oh, we'll have Africa tonight. Right, which is, so it's not just a geographic place; it's a psychological place; it's a psychosexual place. Isn't there also a point that you make in your book about the word allegiance, where mm. in the story, which is it's such a great part of the published version, which is the the elephant hunting story, 
how David, a young David, switches his allegiance to defend or sympathize with the elephant. And you're suggesting that a similar thing is happening in the present day as David is looking back on it. Could you explain that? That was such a, a, a great connection. Yeah. David literally thinks to himself um, one day, and this is after Catherine's, you know, uh, burned uh, the manuscripts, I think, uh, that, he, yeah, this is the day he switched his allegiance to Marita, you know, instead of to Catherine. Mm. Um, although, what I will also say, and, and, and that's interesting, since he's, David has also identified Catherine so much with this elephant. There's obviously an irony there that he switches David as a boy, switches his allegiance from his father to the elephant. And here the adult David in some sense is switching away from Catherine to Marita, but away from the elephant. Um, there's a kind of way in which maybe a, there, there's a betrayal in that. And yet what I, what I will also say in the Scribner's edition after Catherine burns the manuscripts, it seems like she just goes away, right? You know, and you've got David and Marita left and there's sort of no more Catherine there. She's driven off and it's, it's almost implied you won't see her again. Um, in the manuscript, it's implied you will. I mean, they, they miss Catherine. They want her to come back, right? Yeah. <laughs> they think she will. <laughs> it, it's, it's just tidier without her in the published version. Yes. Another point that you make about the elephant hunting thing that I wanted to explore with you for a second is this notion of ivory and, yeah. the, and the tusk. And the reason I wanted to ask, ask you about that is simply because I, I don't think we've ever, I've ever heard your opinion about this. So ivory is also the nickname for Hemingway's sister with whom he was famously twinned and they were dressed alike. So we talk around that phenomenon quite a bit on One True Podcast. Um, that has gotten a lot of traction in Hemingway studies about Hemingway's childhood and being similarly dressed. Does that factor into your scholarship? What do you make of, of that? Yeah, no, it's crucially important. Um, you know, at the beginning of the novel, and this is in the published version of the novel too, uh, David and Catherine look enough alike to be mistaken for brother and sister. And that pleases them very much. Mm. Right. Um, and that certainly harkens back to the way, um, Hemingway was twinned with Marceline, his older sister, when he was a child. I mean, they weren't twins, but. Grace wanted to have twins, so she dresses them alike. She cuts their hair identically. Um, and it's, it starts to sound kind of familiar, a lot like the Bournes and, and Sheldons. And one of the ways in which fetishism works is it, it takes something that was experienced as, as traumatic in childhood and turns it into an erotic turn-on as an adult. And it, it, I think that's happening, and it's pretty darn clear. Um, Take the ivory to come to that. Um, the word ivory starts getting used in the manuscript before there's any story about an elephant hunt. 
Uh, you know, she gets her hair dyed an ivory color. She wears an ivory colored dress, right? Um, she's associated with ivory before we get the story of the elephant. And so the story of the elephant comes about partly as a way of dealing with Catherine. But as you say, I mean, Ernest's letters to his sister Marceline are addressed to dearest carved ivory, um, you know, <laughs> Dear old ivory, right? He calls her ivory, all these different combinations of ivory. Um, I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I, I, and I, I think that his relationship with Marceline in his childhood was crucial to, to the structure and development of, of his fetishism and it plays out in his fantasies. So is it also, um, consistent with this line of thinking that Catherine would object to his exercising and exploring the source of that trauma so vociferously, uh, Catherine is essentially demanding that he write on a different topic. Why wouldn't Catherine be open to this kind of exploration? I, I don't know if I would characterize it exactly that way. You're right. She does resist the African stories. I don't think she understands them. I don't think she understands what he's doing there at all as a form of exploration of the origins of his desire. Um, I'm not even sure that I think David has an inkling of that, but only an inkling of that, even though this is a whole novel where, you know, David as a writer is trying to come to terms with his desire um, it's not like he says, well, why do I have this desire or something? You know, let me go find the origins mm. of that. Even though I think in many ways, you know, the story could certainly be looked at that way. But I think what's also going on in the African stories is David's trying to come to terms with his relationship with his father, with his masculinity, you know, and he's, he's quite divided as, as, Every character really is in the novel. I mean, like Barbara Sheldon at one point says, there's, there's two of me and there's two of you and, and Nikki's too, cause I made him too. <laughs> right. I mean, literally, right. These characters are, are quite divided. And for David to negotiate and, and try and figure out and come to terms with the masculine half of his identity, he does try and come to terms with his relationship, which is a very damaged relationship with his father. Um, you know, and he comes to understand his father, you know, through writing these stories. And I don't think it's like a defense of his father. Um, I think it's, it's a love in spite of the damage in that relationship that he, mm. he, it was a very problematic relationship, but he still loves him. And I think it's that relationship with the father that Catherine's resisting. Your explanation about this and the ivory, it just reminds me, there is that one sentence in For Whom the Bell Tolls where Pilar observes just as an aside that Robert Jordan and Maria could be brothers and sisters. Like, isn't that yeah. like, it's just a, a speck, but it's just blown out into a full elaboration in the Garden of Eden. Exactly. You could be brother and sister by the look, right? Or you could go back to a really early story like The Battler, 
where do you remember uh, that Ad Francis oh, yeah, right. married his sister, yeah. right? Or if you look at Soldier's Home, where um, look, there's a the childish flirtation between yep. Krebs and his sister, who shortens his name Harold to Hare. <laughs> she calls him Hare, right? Yep. Um, I walked right the, into the that last, one, Carl. Yep. <laughs> yeah, last, last good country, right? Another one of these brother-sister romances. It, I mean, it's yeah. a major theme in his work. And so it's always there. Yeah. yeah, that's that's great. There's one moment from the manuscript and also which you talk about in your book that happens to be one of my favorites. And I thought that uh, to get you to talk about it would be a real treat. So I'm going to paraphrase this, but you can, of course, correct me. There's the moment where... David says that he's been to the Boulevard Arago at 5 a.m. and he, and he's heard the thud. And so he's describing essentially visiting one of Paris's public executions in the twenties. And yeah. so can you tell us how that fits in and what, what the resonance is of that remark? Yeah. There's a minor theme with crime and the guillotine running throughout um, the Garden of Eden manuscript. Like um, at one point, David thinks of his father, you know, who who his life was a disaster, but he, he, his father always gave remarkably good advice with Tyburn Hill accuracy. And Tyburn Hill, that's the the place where um, the execution site in London. Um, wow. So it's the second time we get an execution site. Um, and, and Hemingway did used to play tennis right across the street from the Boulevard Argo. So I, who knows if he was out for an early enough tennis game to, to, to catch that. I mean, it's the sort of thing that Hemingway would have gone and seen, I imagined, you know, if he could. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think if he, if he went and saw it, he would have, written about it or told us about it. It's this just seems like quite a long time for us for us for this to be the first we hear about it. Is there any evidence that he actually did this? I have not found any. I looked for it and did not find it. The funny thing, like like even that crazy joke about Christopher Morley that I mentioned earlier, there is so much about this manuscript you know, remember the action of it is taking place in 1927 that really takes him back to the twenties and his memory of that time period is remarkable. And so he's pulling out so many little things. Like there's a bunch of jokes about perfume, believe it or not. And, you know, I was looking through his library and he's got a book on perfume. And so, and then, then I do some more research. Oh, he knew the author of this book on perfume. Oh, and he'd gone to a party the the author's daughter was a painter and he'd gone to a showing of her paintings and met the author there. So this is stuff that he's thinking about the 1920s and thinking about specifically about 1927 just brings up all of these memories of that time period. He's got an unbelievable memory. So I wouldn't be surprised if he had actually gone there but yeah, there is this whole theme of, of, of murders, crimes of passion too, um, that, that's there. And I think that the, um, there's references to the mass murderer 
Landru, um, who was the, the Bluebeard of Gambe. Uh, and there's a whole thing with, with Bluebeard that runs throughout um, this text where David's in some ways a Bluebeard figure. So if Hemingway is thinking about these the 20s in Paris as he's writing A Movable Feast and The Garden of Eden, that must make them an interesting companion piece to, to think about together. Yeah, because he was working on them at the same time. As, as I said, you know, it was while Mary was typing up the earlier chapters of, of A Movable Feast that he started writing The Garden of Eden. And he would come back to a movable feast sometimes while he was working on the Garden of Eden. And we know this because if you look at the movable feast manuscript, there are pages that have notes for both stories. Um, really interesting wow. notes too. And my favorite note on one of those, he's trying out titles for the Garden of Eden on a passage that has, or a, a page from the movable feast manuscript that has notes for the, the, bit about the pilot fish uh, that he mentions, right? That passage in, in a movable feast. And he, for a while considered naming Barbara Sheldon, Catherine um, and having two Catherine's in the book. And he plays with the title, the two Catherine's as, as a title for the garden of Eden and says in a line that's crossed out there, but you can still read it. I've called both women, Catherine, because I have such a lovely name. Wow. Yeah. Carl Eby, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast. His new book is Reading Hemingway's The Garden of Eden. This has been great, Carl. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. I've had a blast. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on onetruepod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society the English Department at the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh,